when I come up to the front of the hall in the evening to offer some reflections on the teachings, I am always moved to take a moment to just pause and in the traditional way express my gratitude and my appreciation to the to the teachings, to the Buddha, to the awakened beings who have shared and practiced and transmitted these teachings through the ages, through the generations, as represented by the images here in the meditation hall behind me. And to just take a moment to really honor what a precious, what a blessed, what a beautiful thing this offering of teachings has been and how much for myself I feel grateful and feel my life profoundly affected for the for the better by having encountered these teachings. And that sense of just bowing down, of, of gratitude, of honouring what is worthy of honour, is I think something that is really helpful for us. And when I first encountered the teachings, I didn't really have any sense of that. In fact, when I first began teaching, if there was a Buddha in the room, I'd remove it. So I thought it's best we don't have those sort of religious images around. They just get in the way. And then there was a period of time when if there was a Buddha there, I left it there. And if there wasn't a Buddha there, that was fine too. And these days, if uh, I turn up to teach and there isn't a Buddha in the room, I put one there. Because it's important that we have some symbolic representation of the fulfillment of human possibility. And that that responsibility doesn't fall upon the person sitting in the front who is a human being. And uh, as the Buddha was, of course, a human being. And uh, Kuan Yin, the, uh, the Bodhisattva, the, uh, the awakened being, uh, who embodies a, a quality of uh, universal and infinite compassion. These two images we have here. It's just something I, I like to acknowledge sometimes. And what I'd like to speak about this evening and offer some reflections with regard to is for me something that lies at the very heart of the teachings that were and continue to be offered in this tradition starting from the Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago. And what I'd like to talk about we could perhaps summarize or describe as the end of separation. We often might think of and hear about, and in fact the teachings of the Buddha often spoke about, spoken about in terms of suffering or coming to the end of suffering. In fact the Buddha's famous for a particular quote where he's He's famous for a few things, but one of the quotes he is famously recorded as having said was, I teach one thing, 
and one thing only, the end of dukkha, of suffering, the end of that which is hard to bear. And uh, suffering and the end of suffering. This is something we are interested in as human beings. And the end of separation. The significance of this is that the tendency to separate, and I'll say more about what that involves, is the mechanism that underlies the experience of the suffering that these teachings and practices transform. You could say it is the basis of dukkha, the tendency to separate. And the, the heart of these teachings, the heart of wisdom, the heart of the Dharma, and what it means to embody an awakened heart. Is founded on our capacity to see through the appearance of separation. We could say to realize the emptiness of separateness. And so as we're practicing and paying attention to our experience and the flow of moment by moment life revealing itself and our responses and reactions, what we find over time, the practice quite naturally begins to deepen. It's an organic process. And one of the markers, one of the aspects of what we perhaps start to notice in that deepening is that sometimes the sense of hard boundaries or edges start to become softer, begin to blur, perhaps maybe even sometimes to dissolve. And that the movement of breath, which began off as perhaps a sort of a series of events called an in-breath and an out-breath. And then as we get a little bit more refined, an in-breath followed by a pause, followed by an out-breath, followed by a pause, followed by an in-breath it starts to become actually more of a fluid flowing and ebbing, a rippling movement of sensation that is fluid in its sense and not bounded by starting and stopping in the same way but simply changing through that process. And we might notice that this body this torso with limbs and a head that starts off as various sort of parts that have different feelings to them. And of course, this is an aspect of what's true about the experience. But as we start to become more intimately close to the inner experience of what we call body, it becomes more of a field of vibration. We start to feel it more as an elemental experience in which we notice pressure or solidity or hardness or softness which is all earth element and we notice warmth which is you know warmth or coolness hot or cold and this is element of fire we notice changing 
in those experiences. We notice how that shifts. So it starts in one place it's harder, another place softer. Or one place warmer, another place cooler. Or in the same place, what was warm is now cool. What was dense is now more open. And those changes, that sense of movement is in the in the Buddha's kind of framework for the elemental nature of our experience, it's like movement is the wind, is the air, and how things change. And there's also the sense of how it sort of holds together. Because it does, doesn't it? There's a sort of cohesion about it. And, and this is water element. And I always remember when I first heard that thing, well, what's that about, water element? Cohesion. Well, if you take a pile of dust and add a bit of water, what do you get? Huh, mud. You take some flour, blows away in the wind. Add a bit of water, dough. Huh, water is the cohering element. Take it away from the body, it's a pile of dust. So water is that sense of cohering that we find as an elemental quality, we find. And as we start to experience, we don't necessarily think in terms of these elemental qualities, but we could reflect in these ways if we wished. But we start to notice, oh, there's a sense of pressure, or there's a sense of warmth or coolness, or there's a sense of movement and change. And there's a sense of also of cohering, or, or togetherness of the experience in a certain way. <coughs> and it's much more of a field experience than a bunch of events or particular discrete sort of pieces. And I think we start to notice and experience at times our body like this. And if, we, if we're able to sustain, as we become more and more able to do, to sustain our attention on experiences, and not just we notice something and then we sort of disconnect, but we start to notice one thing and then the next and then the next. One breath after another, one sound after another, one sensation after another. We start to feel how they're somehow fluid again, how they, they, they're dynamic. It's not like it's just this and then that, but it's like this somehow morphs or flows or transforms or reshapes into that. And the experience is like that as a, a felt thing. It's like the hard boundaries of our body start to soften. The edges sometimes feel fuzzy and blurred when we take a step. And can we really tell where my foot ends and where the ground begins when I press it into the earth? Or if we're sitting just now, and we, if we just take a moment to notice, so where is the place where my bottom ends and the seat or the cushion or the bench begins? And you can just see, is there a sort of a, like a firm place where it goes like that, shaped like my buttock or what I think my buttock is shaped like? Or is it just a, ah, somewhere in the territory it shifts from being something that feels like this body end, and there's a sense of just not that, whatever I'm sitting upon that's beneath it. And I only experience it as the contact of the two, and the territory in which that contact is taking place. And likewise, if we're listening, and sometimes we've been invited just to listen, and hear a sound. And if you ever wondered, you know, is the sound I'm hearing, is it on the inside or the outside? Because it might be coming from somewhere outside, but it's only heard when it's inside. So where is the sound? 
Is it inside or outside? And of course it isn't one or the other, really, is it? And by, in a way, moving and manifesting in the territory that apparently we at least assume or believe to be somehow apart, inside, outside, we, we feel that less distinct, less solid. And we don't necessarily think that, but we just start to feel. Sometimes oh, things feel softer or more open. And that very openness is, is part of a sense of, oh, yeah. Like, where is the inside of the body? <coughs> and the outside of the body? And the world around it? How do they how are they distinguished when I actually try and feel it? When I'm not just looking at an image in my mind, a picture or a drawing or a photograph that I've seen, I feel it. It's like, actually, what feels like it's really inside is completely connected to what's outside, my, my lungs. And your lungs. They're not separate in the way we think about it. And you know, what's most on the inside is a hollow tube. goes from the top of our mouth to the bottom of our bottom. And that's the thing most on the inside. But it's full of stuff from the outside. We probably don't want to think about it too much. But it's good sometimes to think about biology, I find, in practice. The Buddha encouraged it reflecting on biology. It's like what's on the inside, the most inside piece of me is full of stuff from the outside. And it's on its way to going back to the outside. So the outside is on the inside. I'm not just playing with the language. It's actually what's happening at a material level. And what I call the body that I think is inside, what's in here, is grown out of that outside stuff that's on the inside for a little while. Is that me in there? You know, biological stuff can be a bit awkward sometimes. We can find it embarrassing or sometimes even, you know, like disgusting. Just kind of curious, but we all have it. And, you know, sometimes... As I remember encountering a, a sign somewhere once saying, when you smell something, there's little bits of it getting in your nose. It's like, hmm, I'm not sure I like that. I don't want little bits of things getting in my nose, but that's what's happening. That's how I smell things. I don't mind if it's some tasty food, but other things I'm not sure about. We can feel that sense of, oh, I kind of resist a little bit the idea that what's out there gets in here. I'd kind of like to keep it out. Some things I'd definitely like to keep out. And that's at a sensory level, of course. At another level, our thoughts. It feels so intimately who we are. But as we watch, as we see the thinking processes, so much of it just appears. Born of conditions that we didn't choose and we don't control. My teacher in India, Munindra, he once observed, he said, you know, thoughts, they come from outside the mind. 
wow, really, what does that mean? It's a bit like a radio station, isn't it? Someone out there is beaming thoughts. And somehow our radio transmitter, receptor, picks them up and has them. And we think, no, no, surely not, they're mine. I'm having those thoughts. But see if you're in charge of the playlist. Then you could say I was having those thoughts, but mostly we're not. And if we look at them, mostly we got them from someone else. I think I said this the other day, or maybe this morning. They're not ours. Most of the thoughts we have, somebody else told us them, or said them to us, or wrote them down, and we picked them up. Occasionally we have an original one. It's really quite an experience to have an original thought. It might have happened to you today. It doesn't happen to me every day. Mostly the thoughts I have are thoughts I've had before. Have you noticed that? And often I have them so many times I think that I must have started them. But actually there's few of those. Mostly somebody else gave them to us and they usually got them from somewhere, someone before them. They're kind of like hand-me-downs. But they're compelling to us nonetheless. And these thoughts and this thinking process tends to tell a story. It tells a lot of stories, a number of stories, but one of the fundamental and underlying stories is the story of me over here, who is, it seems, separate from you that's over there and everything else that's outside of me without having carefully looked to see what's going on. And this way of relating and perceiving creates a sense of separateness that we sometimes talk about in terms of a separate, independent entity existence. But for now, we can just, I think, look at or consider the experience of what it is to feel separate without having to get into a philosophical debate on the sort of the reality or otherwise of self and such things which is sometimes an interesting and useful exploration but easily takes us away from an actual experience because we experience a sense of meanness for sure and the Buddha's teaching doesn't deny the existence of this. It simply says to look at it and see, is this something that exists in an unchanging form, in a way that is separate from and untouched by what is around it? I.e., is it a separate phenomena? Or is it a phenomena that's fluid, connected, affected and touched and therefore we could say connected and not separate from what it is arising within and so we can consider this or we'll, we'll look at this experience
if we just perhaps remember or imagine if that's helpful what it's like when fear arises for us when we feel threatened or in danger there's this very clear and strong sense of separation and of otherness that arises it's like there is that which is a threat to me or to mine or to those or that which I care for And that very sense of fear that expresses itself in our body and our mind has this sense of a hardening and a tightening. And uh, as I spoke about the other day, that sort of closing of the membrane around the body or the cell or the system that is trying to contain it. And that closing of the membrane in a, in a defensive way is trying to protect from something that feels to be outside or more precisely other and the sense of who we are arises in relationship to this the sense of self arises in relationship to other the sense of me arises in relationship to a sense of the world which is essentially everything else that's not me and so there's this very curious thing because at some level what we most fear is a sense of otherness that which is different than and if you see in our cultures our societies how strongly we can polarize and tragically at time polarize against in ways where we're perceiving or groups within societies or between societies are perceiving otherness as a difference as a not the sameness in some way or form and it feels threatening that there is that which is other but at the same time as it feels threatening it's actually that which creates the sense of who or what we think we are. So we actually need that sense of other in order to have a sense of self or of me. Otherwise the whole thing breaks down. If there was only me and no other, it wouldn't make sense to think of me. We wouldn't have that thought. And we can see that there's a need for this also in our culture. I remember being really struck and saddened actually. In 1989 I was travelling in Asia at the time. I was attending retreats and practising and um, heard the news of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And my family had spent, or one side of my, fa my father's family had spent years on the eastern side post-war before they did emigrate from there. And that sense of hope in the world for, ah, at least the part of the world I was in, that, ah, oh, the end of that kind of very strong separation, you know, measured across a, a, a concrete wall and the split and the conflict and the otherness between East and Western Europe. And, you know, within weeks, I started to see in the international media stories 
about the dangers of various expressions of Islamic culture. Islamophobia. That once there was no longer within the frame there had been an other, the finding of an other did not take long. And that sense of need to have an other, because without that we do not know who we are, is shown at a national and an international level in this way. And again, the consequences of this are profoundly tragic and painful. And part of what this expresses, this othering, this trying to, in a way, define myself by being different than or other than whoever I'm saying is not myself or not my community or my country or my ethnicity or my religious or cultural heritage or whatever it is that's being used to make another something other is an expression of an endeavor to take outside of what we kind of own all of that which is uncomfortable or not okay for us to acknowledge. In simple terms, to place the sense of what is bad or what is wrong outside. So I do not need to have or be this. In psychology it's talked about in terms of splitting. The, the, the need to be good who doesn't want to be good? I want to be good. I want to be seen as good. And there's bits of me I don't want people to see because if they see that, they'll know I'm not good. I'm not going to list them here. But we do, don't we? I was really struck when I was in... Um, In the French um, Pyrenees about five or six years ago, um, and I'd gone to this particular part of the French mountains, particularly because I knew there were wolves there, and I was excited to, to go and spend some time in the mountains where I knew there were wild wolves that were starting to find their way back into France from Italy, where they had survived the um, endeavours of the medieval European endeavour to exterminate wolves in much of Europe, which was in many countries successful. And I saw there, and this was so fascinating to me, the history of what actually happened, at least in France, and that they actually would capture wolves and hang them up like criminals to kill them. And there was this whole thing of the wolves somehow having been made into the embodiment of evil as if we could put it outside of ourselves and make it, it's them, they are the bad and the horrible and, and we'll punish them, we'll kill, we'll hang them. Not just to get rid of them because they might eat our, our food stocks or our children or ourselves, but actually this sense of the badness and still, you know, the wolf in the fairy tale that we hear about. It's like 
so often it's been made into it becomes the embodiment or the personification of something we don't want to own as part of our own human experience violence aggression raw hunger and passion these sort of things we're not sure if we're comfortable with and part of our practice requires us to embrace even if it's uncomfortable even if it's embarrassing even if it's painful to embrace what in us may not look like what we might wish to be seen as and we have to be a little careful in a sort of a context of a buddhist teaching where for instance it sort of it looks like we're encouraged to be full of loving kindness and we are absolutely the buddha spoke of how Anger really isn't very helpful. It causes all sorts of pain and suffering. And yet, how do we hold the fact that sometimes we might feel rageful or wrathful or really feel like, I want to teach somebody a lesson? We have to be willing to see and include everything. Because when we push something out, when we push something away, and appear or endeavor to create a boundary around me and say this is me and that's not we experience that in a way that limits and constricts us and the cost is considerable I'm not saying that therefore we should go out and just act out and sort of whenever I feel angry I'll just go and you know say something or do something no not at all but it's more like let me see those difficult scary And sometimes socially rejected expressions of humanity that are here. The experience of otherness, that which we say is different or that which we have rejected, this is ultimately part of who and what we are. The experience of otherness is something we need to look at. Whatever it is that lies on the other side of the sense of separation. Rainer Maria Rilke on the subject he says we have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world for it is not against us if it has terrors they are our terrors if it has abysses these abysses belong to us if there are dangers we must try to love them and only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that in the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless 
that wants our love. So what is it to turn towards this sense of feeling separate from? This experience that we, we have. It's not to make it wrong. It's to consider it. It's to contemplate it. It's to turn towards. So, so what's actually happening here? It's so painful at one level to feel separate. We both want to be distinct but at the same in the same moment we actually experience as painful to feel not connected to feel apart or outside of the community or the collective is actually distressing to us and so much of where suffering arises in our internal psychological processes is around the way the tragically endemic tendency towards self-judgment in our culture creates a sense of a me that's not okay that's different than everyone else because it's not just that I'm not okay it's that I'm not okay but everyone else somehow must be that's what's so painful we feel disconnected and different othered The much-loved Dharma teacher and uh, also social reformer of Thailand in the 20th century, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I think I actually, I'm just remembering, I mentioned him earlier in the retreat. Um, he was the teacher of one of my teachers. I didn't know him personally. He, he was once asked, how do you work with people who are experiencing immense personal pain and suffering and struggle? Who are overwhelmed. With it. And he said, you know, I send them out into the forest. I tell them to stay there. And I leave them there until they realize that they're part of it. In some ways we've forgotten, it seems. In some crucial ways we've forgotten, it seems that we are part of all that is around us. And that sense of being apart or separate from is at the very heart of the deepest suffering we experience. That which is most deeply hard to bear is the sense of being other and the sense of being apart from and different than what is around us. And it's actually most exquisitely and painfully hard to bear because it is not true. But we've somehow come to believe it. And as we practice, sometimes the sense of separateness begins to soften, becomes less solid, as I was saying. We start to become open to the touch of this life that gets in. It gets right in. 
we can feel pierced, not just touched, but pierced, even by that which is sweet and lovely. As we become more open, more sensitive, and sometimes it's like, oh, I'm not quite sure I can manage all of the sensitivity. Maybe it was better being insensitive. So we need to go slowly. We need a place like our house which is mostly safe and where people are pretty gentle and friendly and quiet and, and there's not too much going on because it's hard to navigate the territory. But it's not impossible. We can do this and we start to sense. It's like sometimes some simple experience just touches us and we can't explain why it is that it moves me so. To hear the sound of a bird. As someone was describing today. The song of a bird. And just touched by that. Captivated by that. Or we see some kindness expressed from one person to another and it just overwhelms us in some way. It's like it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to see a human being being kind to another or to a creature or to a flower or a plant. There's something incredible about it. And sometimes we sense and feel that. Or hearing of someone else's situation and the difficulties and the challenges, the in the small groups, some of the the power of it is that we, we hear each other. We hear from each other. We get to share with each other and be heard. But how it gets in when we hear someone else's experience and resonate with it. And it's like, whoa, yeah. Even if it's not what's happening to me. Even if I haven't had that experience or even anything like it. At a certain point, we receive it in a way that touches us to the very core. And again, this points to and speaks to the fact that we are not separate from the person whose story we are hearing. Because we're affected by it. And the definition of being separate is that we wouldn't be affected by it. Of course, we construct the sense of separateness to try and not be affected by some things. That's what it's there for. It's like building a protective wall. But in not being affected by some things, we find ourselves cut off from other things and distanced from all things. We are affected and we affect that's why we take care with our actions. Everything we do ripples out and touches others and all of the life around us. So we take care with that. Become sensitive to that because we understand how we feel when we're affected. And we start to recognize that, oh, everything I do affects others equally in that way. So why wouldn't I take care with it all as best I'm able? Because this is me too, the sensitivity, this life. Quite naturally we want to care for it. Because that's the way we care also for ourselves. We affect and we are affected. In this field of sensitivity, 
of organic, conscious, sentient life that vibrates, that resonates, that penetrates. We see that everything matters. Even things we might not imagine or conceive of as alive nonetheless are inextricably part of the livingness we inhabit. The oxygen and the very soil of the earth out of which is grown the nourishment from which our existence is grown and shaped. And we affect it and how we are and it affects us. Constantly this is happening. But mostly we don't put our attention there. Because that would be a pretty shaky place to be. To be that open, to be that vulnerable to life. To take the risk that we were not actually separate from all that is around us. But strangely and curiously and interestingly to me, everything is trying to get closer. You might wonder, what do I mean? Well, science, which we can give a certain amount of trust towards, shapes a lot of our worldview. You don't have to believe everything it says. But science has basically identified two kinds of forces. There's the strong force and the weak force. It's pretty simple, really. It's probably complicated as well. But in the simple version of it, the strong force is the force that holds different subatomic particles together through magnetic charge. Like that's what holds atoms together. If you split that, you get an explosion. It's pretty big. It's kind of destructive. There's a lot of force involved in a tiny little thing holding itself together. It's like this wants to hold on to that. You pull them apart, bang. That's the strong force. The weak force is the fact that all matter exerts a pull on any other matter that's in proportion to the amount of matter there is. We call it also gravity. That's the word that supposedly explains what's happening. But what's actually happening is that any material body pulls any other material body it can pull towards it. It's a weak force, so it doesn't just grab everyone and everything all the time. But if it could, it would. Material matter is attracted to matter. It wants to get close. It's like as if even molecules care. And the earth holds us to her, we could say. Literally. And we, in our little way, hold to the earth. Now, we don't have so much mass, so we're not exerting a lot of force on it. But that's actually what's happening, as far as we can tell with the best science we have right now. Isn't that curious? 
as opposed to just a bare fact of physics. The sense of being drawn together. Don't we recognize that? That wish to connect? Maybe every cell and every molecule in our body would actually just like to be closer. The poem I'd like to share with you, which uh, I've just managed to forget the author's name. And I apologize to them for this, but I'm going to quote the poem anyway. Hmm. It's not in my notes, because normally I remember it. It's a curious thing, isn't it? As one's mind slowly goes the way of all things. But there we are. So I'll tell you the title afterwards. You'll perhaps understand why. But it goes like this. It says, the poem, oh, I can feel the title, of the author's name on the edge of my consciousness. But I'm going to leave it alone because I know I won't find it that way. Okay. It goes like this. Doctor. And you can, I'll just say, you can, it's easier if you have the chance to read it a couple of times. But it's, it's obviously a, a conversation in a certain way going on. And it's a, it's entitled, it's, it's, it's actually Monet speaking, just to give you the reference so you know what we're talking about. It goes, Doctor, you say, you know, Monet the artist? Sorry, <laughs> probably you do. I didn't for a long time in my life. Doctor, you say there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris. And what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before, I could not see Rouen Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of light. And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you the Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night? to become the fluid dream of the Thames. I will not return to a universe of objects that do not know each other, as if islands were not the, lo the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve, and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it, to paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see 
how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world. Blue vapour without end. The poem is entitled Monet Refuses the Operation. We feel this softening, blurring sometimes. And when we reflect on what we find in our hearts, I think we might start to know or see and sense more clearly that caring is something inherent in what we are. Benevolence is something there within us. And we begin, we come with that into this world. But it becomes limited by the way that we identify with a particular sense of who or what I am and who or what is important to me. That separating process has a restricting effect on the flow of love. And sometimes to the extent we even trust that that is there within us. But as we practice, cultivate, in so many ways, I think at times we start to again begin to recognize, yes, we can. Yes, there is this tender, resonant capacity in what we call our hearts that we could speak of as kindliness, as friendliness, as loving, caring, benevolence. And we see how we care about what is me and what is mine. What we feel close to. Our family, our ethnic group, our nation, our religion, our species. Or whatever it is. Or our whole general, you know, we tend to feel a bit easily, more easily close. Many of us with like other warm-blooded furry mammals than with reptiles, for instance. Not everyone. I have a friend who likes snakes. But things that seem similar we kind of more easily open to. But to understand the not separateness of our existence is to allow our heart to open without boundary. The boundlessness of love that the Buddha spoke of when he said that just as a mother would cherish and protect her child, with a boundless heart, so too could we cherish all beings. And that this process of where we close to somehow protect, to keep this part of life that I've called me, somehow protected from that part of life which I've said is other and unwelcome, that the cost of this is one that ultimately we will not choose to pay. That we will come to see in this journey that to hold ourselves separate, to try to extract ourselves and boundary ourselves in absolute terms does not serve and does not work. 
And that doesn't mean that there aren't times and places where we need to say no or stop or make a boundary. That's different. That's appropriate protective response to care for what needs to be cared for. But understanding that at the deeper level there is ultimately no fundamental separateness. And when we understand this, love is no longer limited by identifying with one part. When there are no boundaries, love is boundless. And life is unbounded. We realize the awakened heart And the liberated life are the same. This is the invitation of our practice. The invitation of the teachings of the awakened ones. Can we be completely open right here and now? Embodying this wakeful, unobstructed sensitivity. To not bind ourselves to or define ourselves by any of the experiences or the objects that we encounter. And equally not hold ourselves separate from them or apart from them. Nor separate or apart from all that is. The spiritual teachings of all authentic and transformative traditions point to this. And so I'd like to finish with the words of Black Elk, a holy man of the Ogala Sioux, one of the native peoples of Turtle Island, the United States of America. In fact, North America, the continent, Turtle Island. And he recounts this experience. He says, Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all. And round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there I saw more than I can tell. And I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit. And the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. In the heart of spiritual teachings, we are invited 
to explore, to discover, to enter into and know for ourselves the heart of an awakened life in which separation is seen and seen through. Let's sit together for a few moments. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to see and see through the appearance of separation, to abide in the unbounded heart of life for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.